delighted to introduce um, my guests right now. And let me just say how I kind of stumbled onto this gem of a person it was from the Women's Studies newsletter that I receive. And there's this introduction of new student highlight. <laughs> and I scroll down and the, the descriptions of of Dr. Jones is wonderful. It, she directed plays, taught music, written books, lived on a 37 foot sailboat and so much more that it's like, wow, I need to talk to this person. So Dr. Lucy Jones is here with me right now. Um, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your life. My joy, my pleasure. So yeah, I just started to mention um, a little bit about what enticed me about your background, but there's so much more. I mean, you climbed Mount Fuji in a typhoon. Um, you're a retired United Methodist minister, and yet you're doing this. Um, oh yeah, and you're teaching. You're teaching, of course, at, at HEC, but you're doing this certificate program at the Women's Studies Department here at UH. Right. Um, I don't even know where to begin with you. Perhaps. <laughs> I know. Where would you like to begin? I mean, I would like to know a little bit about your upbringing, but tell me where okay. you want to start your story. Okay. I was, um, I'm a, about a fifth generation Methodist preacher. And so I grew up, you know, around a lot of Methodist ministers in uh, Southern Illinois. And um, when I was about three years old, there was a major flood um, at the very tip end of Illinois where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers come together. And it was such a major flood that it changed the geography of that whole area uh, quite a bit. So that is kind of the earliest that I remember about me. We, my, my dad was um, a pastor there in this little town right there, in, at, at, right there by the, on the rivers. And um, the funny thing about it, my cat just now came up and decided she wanted a part of this too. One of the funny stories um, that came out of that was my mother, my dad came and picked us up in a rowboat to get us to safety. And um, my mother grabbed me, her violin and a Monopoly board mm. because she had borrowed it from somebody and absolutely had to get it back to them right away. So <laughs> it's funny what we think of when we're in that crisis Exactly. Mode. It's, you know, those, those hypotheticals, like if you had to bring three things with you, you know, <laughs> on a, a deserted island, what would they be? And you actually had that real right. moment. That's right. That's right. So I'm glad she put me first, but she was a violinist, a, a, an accomplished violinist. Yeah, I felt really responsible about that Monopoly board, but Monopoly had just been invented. Now, what year was that? 1937. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I, I did not know that. I did not know that Monopoly was around since the 30s. Um, and so tell me a little bit or tell us, our radio listeners, about what it was like to live in, in the 30s. I mean, as far as you can remember, pre-war, if we can start there. Where, where were yes. you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was not directly involved in much of the war because it was all sort of in between. You know, I remember one of my great uncles who was a doughboy in World War I, and he was still a major figure in my life, even at that point. And um, so I knew a lot of my great uncles. I knew my great grandmother quite well. And if we, this was right at the end of the major depression. And so how we ate, how we lived, all of that was pretty much what, how everybody lived. You know, I remember so many things that you read about in history books today. And uh, when I'm teaching a women's studies, I remind them that 
women were uh, given the vote less than, I think it was about 18 years before I was born. So all of that was still really new. Um, you know, my grandmother was a suffragette. My great grandmother was a suffragette. Uh-huh. And so all of that is, is that we read about was part of my history. So you were, you grew into, I mean, you were born into a, a feminist family. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so I'm sure that had a big impact on how you were shaped with who you are. Right. And my father was very, very supportive. Uh, no matter what I wanted to do, always very supportive. And not all men were at that age, you know. Um, yeah. It was a lot of the woman stays at home and works and takes care of the family. The men went out and, and brought home the bacon, yeah. so to speak. So education for you was something that was supported at home and something that you personally always kind of sought for yourself. Yes. You know, there was never a question of, do you want to go to college? It was, where are you going? But Even you- in that day, it was very rare. yeah. Um, I mean, I'm going to jump back and forth in, in time, oh, sure. I mean, oh, sure. decades, but I'm just trying to think about how we think about education today. You know, um, we're so privileged that some people often say, we don't, I don't care. I choose not to, or I learn in different ways. You know, right. when in your time back then, it was, um, it was something so sought after and valued. Right. That I, I wonder, I guess my question to you is, do you think the concept of, edu- of education has changed and how? It really has. Um, you know, it was interesting. I don't know. It's been a number of years ago now. And I was watching uh, some women on a talk show who were from um, a women's college back in the Northeast. And they were saying, well, you know, we're going to get our education, get our degrees, and then we'll work for a little while and then we'll get married and so forth. Like it was some big deal. And I've thought, you know, that's not the way it always was. It was always a lot different. You know, you didn't start out with getting your education. You started out getting a family and getting married and so forth. And so uh, for them, you know, it was like they thought they were being these real feminists, you know, by going to. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to say, you know, if it hadn't been for me and some of my cohorts in the early years, I was part of that, what we call the second wave of feminism. Hmm. And I would say that my grandparent, uh, my grandmother and my great grandmother were part of the first wave. Can you clarify for people what that meant? Like what did, what did the second wave mean? Was that, that wasn't the bra burning one. Was that? Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was the bra burning era. But I remember uh, being in a, in a a concert of a a woman, the feminist women who was singing and, and I looked around and here was this auditorium full of women. And it was just so overwhelming for me. I, it was an experience that I'd never had, even though I was raised with women who were very strong, just to be in this auditorium with maybe a handful of men, but mostly women for this concert. And so that was probably in the late sixties, early seventies. So what was it? I mean, good era. That, that era, I mean, you, we can watch, I watch videos, documentaries and films about that time celebrating the women, but you lived through it. I mean, would you say there was really an energy in the air about feeling like you needed to vocalize yourself, you know, to give oh, voice yeah. to women? You oh, yeah. felt compelled yeah. to do you that. Know, this was the era of Woodstock. Yeah. So, <laughs> and um, uh, it's interesting about Woodstock too, you know, because there was a lot of nudism going on. Uh, the so- whole sexual revolution 
really was taking place at that time. And yet the women were still being the little wife, baking the bread and, and doing all of those. And yet it was, so it was more of a sexual revolution than just the women coming out. It was um, all about being who you wanted to be. Yeah. It's interesting because I had just interviewed these two young ladies from the theater department and they're talking about their choice um, and their gender preference as, as lesbian and non-binary. And I feel like what you just said there is something that they feel they're, they're experiencing now is that this is the time for us to be able to own it, if you will. But yeah. it actually happened back then in the 60s. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, if we can compare it, like how what difference does the war? Actually, it was quite of a similar coming of, of age, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a coming out of, of women, yeah. but also a coming out of, of your whole sexuality at that point. And people were experimenting. A lot of experimentation was going on. Like what? Can you give examples of like, maybe can you share even per, per I don't know well, if just, you want to share part. Well, you know, maybe just sharing partners, um, a lot of nudity. Just yeah because we had all felt so closed in for so long, yeah. you know, that um, I don't know how to explain it really. <laughs> well, okay, so, but if you think back, were you, so the concept of the body was something that you embraced, that you actually celebrated. It was, it was sort of new to all of us, yeah. I remember, um, you know, I had gone over to, to see some friends and, um, the whole idea of like smoking marijuana was a big deal right then. Everybody was smoking. Sure. And um, even though it was not legal at that particular time, but it was it was a big, big thing. And so, you know, I uh, went by these um, to see these friends and I said, I just had to come by. I said, I just left my husband. And he was he said um, the, the husband of this friend of mine was there and he said, oh, far out. He says, come on in and let's get high. I mean, that was, you know, <laughs> the way that they we just sort of looked at everything. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Do you think that things like that happen in cycles, like we need to kind of close ourselves off and feel like we need to be overprotective and conservative and kind of and then things yeah. get released and then they kind of perpetuate in those. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that I, I kind of see our whole right now, people being much more conservative than we were in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Much more. Um, I mean, we were very vocal about being anti-war. We were very vocal about expressing ourselves in whatever way we wanted. And I don't see that happening today. Really? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, when I'm talking to young women, for instance, uh, they want to get married. They want to have children. They want, it's kind of gone back to a much more conservative viewpoint of life. It seems to me, I don't know, compared so to, to the 60s and 70s, I guess I would say. Right. Um, and I'm curious because you are also an ordained pastor. You've been, you may, you've been counseling and you've been getting people married for many, many years. Right. Um, and it's interesting that you're reflecting on how things were so open that they were, people challenged the concept of marriage back then. Yeah. Yeah. So did your, um, your religious influence, did that shape or inf um, affect the way you, you felt about marriage for yourself? And I was single for about 20 years after I left my, my first marriage. Okay. And um, I did not become a pastor until the mid 80s. Ah, okay. So all of that was kind of behind me. Hmm. 
And um, I remember somebody making a crack. Well, now that you're ordained, you're going to have to start wearing a bra. So <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess you're right. No, says <laughs> so who? <there> was, <laughs> Right. So there was a big shift for me in that respect. Yeah. Is this, would you say this is primarily an American culture that we're talking about? This? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm thinking, you know, because I, I lived in Hong Kong for many years and, and the concept of feminism there, even though they, you know, you know, um, feel that there is that movement there, it's so different from that American kind of expression, you know, yeah. God forbid anyone go braless as, as an Asian person, you know, it's just not. Right, fun. right, right. But it doesn't mean you can not be vocal and radical, even though you're wearing a bra. I mean, I was just right. saying that that's just, <laughs> but the, the if you're not going to burn it, you, then you don't wear it, you know, I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, it's really interesting that you say that you feel that today's voices are, are, are kind of more, I guess, controlled or less radical than it was less back radical, then. radical, I would say. Um, yeah. And what do you think the reason is for that? Yeah, it's a lot of politics, a lot of politics. That has changed. For a while, I was the campus minister at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And in fact, that's where I was before I came here. I came here in 96. Um, and I came as a pastor of Pahala and Na'alehu churches. And then I retired in 2003. But while I was the campus minister there, there were about four or five of us from different denominations. And we worked in what we call the Campus Christian Center. Somebody said, where are the, the people who are rebelling? Um, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, you would have seen that center crowded with the protesters. Nobody was protesting, you know, in the 90s. You know, and some of the other pastors were saying, where are they? Where are the people who are protesting against what's going on in our government? Where are they? And I would say that today as well. Yeah. Um, because I always try to push, there's a movie that I show from one of my women's studies, which is um, Iron Jawed Angels about the suffragettes. It's one I highly recommend. Okay. What year and is that? I, mm, not too long ago. Okay. I, I don't remember. I will check that out. Okay. <laughs> You'd enjoy that. But Iron Jawed it Early in the year, in the fall, and invariably, the women will say, I've never voted, I've never intended to vote, but I will now, because I know what the women went through in order to obtain the, the vote. But most of them have no idea what the, um, what's being voted on. They have no idea about any of the people who are running, what they are for. Um, I heard uh, and even a middle-aged woman saying, well, I, my husband hasn't told me how to vote yet. I know. Wow. Now? Today? Now. Today. Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, and the women in my classes simply just don't seem, and now the men are not any better, it seems, but they just don't have any concept of what it means to vote or who to vote for or what issues are at stake. Yeah. That concerns me. Uh, you and know, so I, I tell them, you know, read. You have to read. You have to get out of your own little bubble and learn what's going on in the world to make any decision on your own, and right, to, left, or center, yeah, or upside down, no matter what it is, you need to understand and to know what's going on in the world and how you want to influence that. Yes, 
And so you have to pick and choose what you read and listen to carefully. And if people are listening now, I am speaking to Dr. Lucy Jones, who is a professor uh, um, in psychology, right? Yeah, and as well as- In the social sciences. Social yeah. sciences. And also, I don't understand why you're still coming back to school and doing a certificate <laughs> program at UH. But why don't we hold that thought? We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about your, your, your zest for continuous learning and teaching. Great. Welcome back to K2H. If you've just tuned in or you were listening before this, I'm having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Lucy Jones, who has been teaching um, life lessons or learning life lessons herself for all these years. Dare I ask you what year you were born, Dr. Jones? I was born in September of 1934. Wow, 1934. Well, I just turned 86. Congratulations. (laughs) So what is it? What is it that keeps you wanting to learn? You know, when I finished my PhD, which was in the late 70s, That's <laughs> um, I was so disappointed. I had four degrees. I had a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD. And I thought, now what? So I just kept on going. And I think teaching in a college uh, situation kind of helps to satisfy that. But then um, I had already been talking to Dr. Sawaswati at the Women's Studies yes, Department. I, mm-hmm. But I said, I can't fly back and forth to Oahu every week to maybe twice a week to take a class. So this year when the uh, pandemic came along and they all went online, I said, I'm in. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm working um, online, taking the um, Women's Studies Graduate Certificate. Mm. And I was hoping that they uh, would be able to start a master's program in women's studies and so was she but it didn't go because of the the budget (laughs) we're all yeah oh yeah we made a huge think about that oh yeah yeah you know i don't think it's ever going to change what do you think i mean the world just doesn't see the significance the power of learning they I think that women's studies has a bad rap. They, when they think women's studies, they think like, oh. Eight man, yeah. Yes, right, right. And they don't understand what intersectionality is. They don't understand what, what it means. Oh, we have multiple ways of thinking already. Why do we need women's studies? But can you help us uh, like just help the department argue? I think it's, it needs to be perhaps, and, and this is just sort of my own thinking on it right now, and if we, if it was made into more of a just a gender study, that that might have a wider appeal, because the minute you talk about women's studies, it's like, oh well, all you do is get together and bitch about men, and that's of course, as you know, not the case at all. But yeah. it's helping us to understand our own history. Mm. Um, the same as any culture needs to understand their history, and I think that we. Um, and I've had a lot of men in my classes wanting to find out more. And that, that was just beautiful. Yeah. But I think that maybe if it was more into gender studies and looking at, at all of, all of the, the whole gender concept would probably be more likely to go. And I, in fact, a lot of universities are, are using gender studies rather than women's studies, oh. which takes it out of the realm of, well, it's just women getting together to, to yeah. complain. Right or man-hating, whatever. Yeah. But I think to, to encompass the whole gender studies would be yeah. probably more appropriate. And I it may go that way someday. Well, things don't seem to be going in the right direction in a lot of things right now. Um, mm. You know, I, I completed my 
certificate program last year. And my biggest takeaway from it was it's it's about your approach. It's your perspective. It's not yeah. so much about women at all, really. It's anything you oh. tackle. It's <clears throat> the way you see something and how you frame these stories. Right. So I don't even know. I think gender is quite limiting because the whole racial issue has to be incorporated. The whole different ideas right. that we right. You know that need right. to be part of this program. Um, right, I agree. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, kind of, you know, now that we are talking about all these different gender issues and racial issues, is um, your perspective on, you know, this this racial? Because you've got, you've seen many things, um, and I, I have lived in Mississippi. <laughs> you, oh, so you were okay. Let's hear. I mean, what what are some thoughts based on what you've seen? Well, let's see, I went there in 52 when I graduated from high school <clears throat> and um, I went to college in Jackson, Mississippi. And the, the, I was there basically for the whole decade or most of the decade of the 50s, which was really rough. And yet I ended up getting married, having children there, um, having someone take care of my children. And it was just a totally different life than what you would expect today. But I have been back in the South to visit, and a lot of things have not changed in all of those years. In fact, I would think that a lot of it has gotten worse. And I, I don't even know how to explain that, other than I just know that, that I don't know how to explain it. But okay, I think so probably it's worse now. Yeah. So when you were there during segregation then, and being on the white side of this, um, how did that not... Um, affect your life, so to speak, because you weren't involved with anything that might have been kind of challenged or? Well, like I said, I, I hired a maid to take care of my children. Yes. And that's just simply that's, what was done. There right. was no thinking about the right or wrong of it. <clears throat> it's just that that's what people did. And um, they were all like a part of the family, really. There was, there was not any difference. And I don't know, again, it's hard to explain the difference now, but I would never go back to that kind of life yeah. because it isn't, it isn't right. Yeah. But that's what it was in the 50s. So when you see this whole eruption of this Black Lives Matter anti-Blackness movement right now, do you feel like this is going to somehow make a difference? And is this the beginning of something important that will affect? Well, I hope it will make a difference. I hope so. And I, I know that a lot of my friends in the South, <coughs> excuse me, um, still have maids. Um, one of them made a comment not too long ago that she now pays social security for her maid. And I thought, why didn't you always, you know, I mean, there's just little tweaks in the thinking that we don't even think about today. Yeah. It, it, it's like the given, right? It's like this whole kind of, the, the, we're talking about white supremacy and all that. It's yeah. like, we don't see it because it's just this blank paper that we're basing everything off of. So we don't see that as kind of a, a problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. So how is women's studies going to change thoughts on things like these racial injustices? Well, I, you know, as, if you've just recently finished, <clears throat> you know that a lot of it is about the, the black feminists, mm -hmm. you know, that we're talking about. And perhaps they are the ones that will have the voice that will affect the rest of us yeah. more than me. Mm. 
So do you feel like being a teacher now to empower and to hopefully inspire younger students today to instill a kind of a way of thinking that might make a difference in the future? Is that what kind of... Yeah, and you know, the problem is it's gonna take a long time for the general population to make a lot of changes in their thinking. Yeah. And so those of us who, who are <clears throat> really trying to help push the Black Lives Matter, and not just Black Lives, I would say the, the Hispanic, the, you know, the Asian, everybody. And I have Native American blood. I, I look at what's going on there. So I think that, you know, we need to look at the various cultures in our country, you know, in our population. Yeah. And how they need to be included. <clears throat> I was just um, reading something this morning saying that it's about time that we had a Native American person in the cabinet in <laughs> Washington. True. And that's true. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Um, we're it's putting crazy in that we haven't. In, huh? It's crazy that we haven't. But then again, it's not crazy because of the way things have been kind of not progressing. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> for the last four years. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, now I think that, you know, Biden is, is trying to put in women, trying to put in women of color and um, men of color. Yeah. And Hispanic was just chosen. Yeah. But again, we're not really thinking in the broad term in terms of everybody. Yeah. Of just simply humanity and trying to include as many as we can. Yeah, I, I guess. But not just to include them, but because they are a value. Right, right. Because it's so easy to, to say, oh, we have that one person that, you know, makes us diverse and it's just a number and it doesn't mean anything. No. No. So there's a lot of argument against that. Um, thinking behind the rest of us. Yeah. I, yeah, I think we have a lot, a lot, a long, long way to go, like you said. Um, if people are tuning in now, I'm talking to Dr. Lucy Jones, and I, somehow we stumbled onto the ugly politics of the times, but I really wanted to get into, you know, your your colorful past and all the adventures that you've um, experienced over the, the years. So let's take one more quick break, um, with a water break, if you will, and then we'll come back, and I'd love to hear more of your adventure stories. Okay. So I am so lucky to be talking to Dr. Lucy Jones here, learning about, wow, what it means to grow up in the 30s and to go through um, the second wave of feminism. And, 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 and I'm just so curious about um, your past uh, and what shaped you, you know, in, and again, going back to the Women's Studies newsletter, where you say you climbed Mount Fuji in a typhoon or went on the sailboat. So tell me, you lived on a 37 foot sailboat in your life? What was that about? Well, <clears throat> I had learned to um, sail with some friends there in, in Southern California. And uh, one summer, one, my youngest son, who was about 15 at the time, uh, he and I stayed on my 22 foot all summer. And I said, why don't we just buy a bigger boat and move on? So we did. I, that fall, I sold my house and, and bought a 37 foot sailboat and lived on it with him for about five years. Wow. And then even after that, did a lot of sailing with it. But um, I loved it. I would move back on board if it was possible, but they won't let us do that here. Wow. But it's, it's um, boy, talk about needing to know what your space is available and what to do and where to put what. Everything has its place. Yeah. And it has to be in its place, you know. Right. But um, a lot of funny stories you know, from that era and storms that we went through with taking friends on trips and, and 
going up and down. But um, yeah, the living on board was wonderful, you know. And um, I don't know, I could just, I could spend three hours telling a lot of funny stories about what had happened. But, you know, anytime a storm would come along, everybody else that had sailboats down in the harbor, um, they were home nicely tucked in and, you know, with a cup of hot chocolate or something. But we were out there and storms and the winds blowing. So we were, my son and I were the ones going up and down the docks to secure all the boats because, wow. you know, all the shrouds were slapping against the main and the mast. And it was pretty wicked anyway, but it was fun. <laughs> and then I've been in storms out at sea, you know, where you wondered if it was going to let up. <clears throat> Were you ever in a situation so dangerous that you questioned like your life? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> but my son and I were the only ones really that, that were the sailors. And we would take some people with us, you know, and usually they would be helpful. Or if they were kind of totally useless, I would say, sit there, hold this line and don't move. <laughs> That's crazy. And I <clears throat> imagine how that shaped your son, you know. Well, he was, like yeah, yeah. In fact, he enjoys um, designing sailboats, so forth oh. now. Yeah. So what do you think is the most radical thing you've done in your life? I'm sure you have many. But... Oh, my word. <laughs> There's many, many, many. I don't know. I guess living on my sailboat would be yes, probably qualified as one of the most radical. The um, Well, anytime I, I have moved around a lot, and a lot of people would say that that's pretty radical. They said, if you decide to move, you just up and go. You know, so um, that might be considered by some, but to me, it was just like, I've always traveled. I'm sorry now that we can't travel because yeah. I had plans for this year, yeah. you know. Right. Um, but let me tell you about my, my experience on Mount Fuji. It was not that I climbed in a, in a typhoon, but <clears throat> um, my husband at the time and, and uh, some friends when I were wanting to climb Fuji. And so we got to the base camp, the bottom, and uh, it was, was the very first day after the official climbing season had ended. And so, you know, this was sometime toward the end of August. I don't remember the exact date because it was back in the 60s, mid 60s. But um, we started climbing and the wind just kept picking up and picking up and we'd stop at some of these stations, you know, to get our pole marked. All of a sudden we were just, thrown against the side of the mountain. It, the wind was so strong that we never did make it to the top. But we were all just really kind of holding on to dear life to keep from being blown off the mountain almost. Wow. But it was interesting that um, we were told that somebody is climbing Fuji almost every day of the year. But it was just interesting that this was officially not a cli the climbing season by one day. Oh. And all of a sudden, here we are this, in the middle of this typhoon. Um, the thing that amazed me about the, the hike, though, was the amount of trash on Mount Fuji. Oh. I was amazed. I did not expect it. You don't see that from the distance in the yeah, beautiful Yeah, those pictures. postcards, exactly. Wow. I was so amazed, but it was just littered with all kinds of bottles and trash oh, of all kinds. Oh, sad. Hmm. Now, it's been a long time since then, and maybe they've cleaned it up or people have started to clean it up. I don't know. Hmm. But it was I, it was this big surprise to me. 
did Japan ever go through a kind of a radical phase in the 60s of kind of being a little bit more you wild? Know, Not really. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. Yeah, they, it's a very different culture there, underground. But I wanted to leave with, you know, a, a back to discussing the idea of sexuality, because um, you, you know, when you mentioned how back in the 60s, um, things were so like this, this concept of free love, right, you know, it becomes such yeah. kind of a myth, like a myth, you know, it's just like this romanticized idea. Um, because now we still, as much as we think we're experimental, we still kind of abide by this kind of very um, traditional, like you said, you know, very oh, yeah. upholding oh, yeah. this kind of structure, this patriarchal structure. So would you say, I mean, <clears throat> do you have any thoughts or advice on, on women out there who are searching for, you know, how to embrace their sexuality? Is it something that they need the green light for to kind of go out there to experience things for themselves or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that really because all I know is that for myself, even though, I mean, I'm single now and have been for quite a while, um, but I love being single. I love being on my own, but I also love being open for relationships. Um, my last relationship ended about a year ago uh, because he lived on a different island mm. and it was hard to get back. He was getting so, um, his health was not good. So, you know, that relationship ended. But I think, um, I just think differently, I think from a lot of women. Um, I think about what I want, what I need, and um, not what society expects of me. In fact, in one of my little churches, uh, that I had in Arizona, the people, because I was a, a divorced woman, single, um, they were very concerned for my influence on their young people. Huh. And I had to laugh. I thought, you know, <laughs> because of that, they had this parsonage that was like this four bedroom house with a little white picket fence, literally. And they just thought I was a bad influence on their, on their youth. Wow. So you know, I had to convince them that I really was okay to be there and to be their pastor. You see, I mean, it just goes to show that. that that stigma of the the divorced woman is so right. still right. prevalent. I mean, that's just shocking. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. You would think that in 2020, you know, that we would. Yeah, yeah. We... But it's also, you know, I think that the, the gay population male and female, kind of, they're just barely being able to be acknowledged today, I think. You know, more and more they are, but you still find the, the um, stigma there as well. Yeah, yeah. And, but, but yes, being a divorced woman is kind of the, the epitome of, of shame. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> but, you know, you've, you've, you've proven that <clears throat> you you know, one can go about, you know, seeking things of your own, on your own terms and, and your own fulfillment. Right. And this, right. and more importantly, is the, the continuing kind of um, effort to, to kind of um, embrace more and more, you know, it doesn't stop. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. Right. So um, this is so, yeah, I intend to keep going until I drop. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, any words of advice to people in terms of, um, you know, learning how to love learning? I, I don't know. Um, 
it was just a part of who I was, I think, because learning was so important in my family. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, everybody has always been so much into learning and higher education. So it was hard for me to think of any other uh, way to go, actually. Mm. But I just, I enjoy learning something new. And I tell you, to sit in that class, um, I've been in Women's Studies 615 this last semester, mm -hmm. this, this semester. And just listening to the young women talking and how that is so different, you know, from uh, different and yet the same Yes. As, as in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. You've gone on to the third and the fourth wave of right. feminism. But I, I enjoy seeing them there. And I think that a lot of them are really interested in learning. And um, to be around that is, is so rewarding, so refreshing for me. Well, we have a lot to learn from your, your love of learning. So really, really appreciate that. And I hope you have many, many more experiences to learn from and tell stories from. So oh, I've got a lot of experiences ahead of me yet. Okay, we'll look forward to hearing more of those. So Dr. Lucy Jones with me, thank you so much for sharing all your personal precious stories. And uh, next you time around, welcome. maybe we'll tackle a little bit more of that bra burning information from the <laughs> Yeah, we weren't wearing them either, so. <laughs> There's nothing to burn. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing to burn. All right. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Chris. Thank you.